If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible, and we are in chapter 9 today as we work our way through this uh, book. And uh, we have uh, a number of verses to cover. We're going to read them as we uh, go through this morning. And uh, so let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it while we wait with the people of Israel and the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to yourself through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of your son, Jesus. Teach us today to remember that none of this is our own doing, but we solely trust in Jesus' name. So especially this morning, give us the desire to learn from you and help us consider what it means to be your people. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us know God and help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, if you were here last Sunday, you know we were in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8. And we talked a lot about the need for remembering. And we talked about the danger of forgetting. And if you remember the story of Jimmy, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and look at that uh, sermon. Uh, but we talked about the power of amnesia. And fallen men and women have a problem uh, with amnesia. Our past experiences should be remembered, and the lessons learned need to be stored in our hearts. And instead, we tend to forget. We actually retain very little. Forgetting God is kind of a practical atheism, which can lead to the worst kind of behavior. In a lecture back in 1983, the Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this, and I quote, over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Well, we are witnessing another moment that looks pretty bleak. Russia's invasion of Ukraine may dramatically change the balance of power in Europe, or it may become another great disaster to befall Russia. And while some are arguing for a religious underpinning to this war, I think Solzhenitsyn, explan his explanation is still pretty accurate. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. And to move from Ukraine to Deuteronomy 9, it seems that what uh, much of what Moses is preaching in this chapter could be summarized the same way. Men have forgotten God. 
That's why all this has happened. The danger of forgetting God is a theme that Moses will return to again and again in Deuteronomy. In order to help us not forget about the dangers of forgetting, our memory for important spiritual lessons can be so bad uh, that even having witnessed striking events, even those laden with spiritual significance, is no guarantee that we'll remember them. It's no guarantee for us. It was no guarantee for the Israelites in Deuteronomy. And Moses tells them to remember God, to remember their sin, and to remember their redemption. So let's start with Moses' call to remember God's presence. Verses 1 through 3. It says, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater, greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So the Lord has anticipated what the Hebrew people would say once they took possession of the land. They would claim that their victory over the Canaanites and their subsequent prosperity was due to their own strenuous efforts. That goes back uh, last week, Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. And in light of that false claim of Israel's might, the Lord now emphasizes Israel's weakness. It's actually the Canaanite people who are strong, not the Hebrew people. And back in Deuteronomy 7, those words great and mighty or greater and mightier, they're used to describe the Canaanites, their seven nations, their fortified cities, their individual people. The Israelites haven't been chosen because of their superior strength, but on account of their evident weakness. The proud and arrogant Hebrews are now being told how small and insignificant they really are. It's their opponents who have all the strength. So how could this unruly crowd of desert nomads possibly gain possession of the promised land that lays ahead of them? Well, the secret of their success is certainly not found in their self-assured boasting. Victory can only be achieved by confessing their weakness, acknowledging God's greatness, and expressing their dependence on him. Their true power is not found in their own strength, but in his divine resources. And in order to encourage them as they embark on this new adventure, Moses assured the people that God was among them as they crossed the Jordan. A powerful picture of God is presented to the people as they move forward. And he says, God is not simply with them. He has already gone ahead of them as their advanced guard, so to speak. Verse 3, he who goes over before you. 
And he's going to overwhelm them as a consuming fire. And therefore they can depend on him because he will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Their victory will be solely on the basis of his intervention, not their skill. The conquest will happen solely due to God's strength, not theirs. And while they need to remember the past, what they know in the present will prove no less important once they've crossed the Jordan. Moses' message is rooted in reality. He doesn't pretend the task will be easy. Now, many of today's motivational speakers would tell you that it's a mistake if you're going to be a motivational speaker to mention the might of your enemies or the strength of their cities or the height of their fortifications. All of which Moses does. But knowing that God is going before them as a consuming fire is all they need to know in order to put these obstacles into perspective. But again, this is only half the battle. Because after the victory, they can undo it all by drawing the wrong conclusions. They might assume the blessings that they will enjoy have been earned rather than received. And God is letting them know that would be a big mistake. There's only two reasons why Israel could gain possession of the promised land. One, the nations there are going to forfeit it due to their own wickedness. And two, because the Lord has promised it. But the Lord knows that once their enemies have been vanquished, the Israelite people are going to try and snatch the glory for themselves. I mean, their argument will go like this. Even if the victory is not due to our military expertise, surely it must be because of our moral excellence. God, certainly the victor, but the conquest, you know, we should see it as a well-earned reward, a public recognition by God of our holiness and our obedience and of all of our good deeds. And Moses says, well, I have something else to say about that. And to keep them from that tendency, Moses warns them to remember provoking God. Remember provoking God. Starting at verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, are you going in to possess the land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember, and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, 
You provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. <clears throat> Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you, speaking to Moses, I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourself a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. probably not the gentlest that Moses has been. They seem to think that if the conquest isn't a human achievement, it, surely it's a reward. And Moses tells them that nothing can be further from the truth. They find it near impossible to admit it's totally undeserved. It's generously given on the basis of God's reliable promise, end of verse 5, that he may confirm the word of the Lord, swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This universal desire to earn our own salvation is the reason why so many people cannot seem to put their trust in Christ. If they could gain a place in God's heaven by their own righteousness, or the uprightness of their heart, which is an Old Testament way of saying integrity. They would certainly do it. And to be honest, they would prefer it that way. They, by implication, us, cannot forsake their trust in human effort. And the road to eternal judgment is littered with monuments to self-righteousness. A few more good deeds, a few more prayers, a few more worship services, and all will be well. However, those who accept God's free gift of new life in Christ recognize they can do nothing to earn their salvation. Christ has done it all. It's been said that the only contribution we make to our own salvation is the sin which made it necessary. God is to, uh, was to give the land of Canaan to the Hebrew people because he had promised it to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because he's judging the evil nations who now occupy it. Their moving into the land, therefore, is a token 
of his merciful generosity, an expression of his righteous judgment, and the fulfillment of his reliable promise. None of which have anything to do with their works. Canaanite wickedness, not Hebrew righteousness, is the reason that they're going to move into the promised land and for the blessings they're going to receive. And here's something else Israel needs to remember. They have been and they remain. We're told in this passage twice that they are stubborn. You can almost hear God saying they are a stubborn people. The journey from Egypt to the Jordan is the story of one provocation after another. And as Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, the people are demonstrating, verse 12, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And Moses drives home the point, the land's not a reward for good behavior. He explains that far from being righteous, the Israelites have been persistently unrighteous. If they imagine for a moment that they deserve such a generous gift, it's time to think again. In order to make the point abundantly clear, the people are made to look at themselves as they really are, not as they imagine themselves to be. Have you ever imagined yourself to be something else? For years, I imagined myself to be a pro basketball player. There was only one problem with that. I stopped growing. There aren't too many basketball players of my size. But I was, every now and then, like maybe once a decade, there's some little guy that makes it, and I was going to be that guy. Well, that didn't happen. And they're imagining themselves as better than they are, as something other than they are. But knowing that, and knowing their self-righteousness, look how Moses describes the people as God sees them. He shows them that God has not given the land to a righteous people, but to people who are arrogant, verse 4, stubborn, verses 6, 13, and 27, rebellious, verses 7, 23, and 24, provocative, verses 8 and 18, corrupt, verse 12, idolatrous, verses 12 and 16, Sinful, verse 16. Evil, verse 18. Unbelieving, verse 23. Disobedient, verse 23. And wicked, verse 27. Eleven characteristics which are hardly the marks of a righteous people. And in case those generalizations were not well understood, Moses then gives them some specific examples of their unrighteousness. He remembers scenes of Israel's disobedience. They're not isolated acts. Arrogant defiance had marked the start of their journey, and it persisted for decades. This is a 40-year process. Look at verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, 40 years, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And then Moses reminds them when he's on the top of the mountain and he's meeting with God and God's confirming the covenant with his people, they made a golden 
calf. Verse 8. Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you, he was ready to destroy you. It's an act of blatant disobedience, making an idol strictly forbidden, and doing it at the very time when the Lord's declaring his love for them. Surely, if there's a time for loyalty, that was the time. And on the descent from the mountain, Moses saw they had broken the commandment about idolatry. <coughs> they had just gotten the commandment on idolatry. This wasn't something they had to build up to. They had just gotten the commandment and it was like, okay, which one do we break first? Second commandment, that'll be easy. But it gets worse because Aaron, his own brother, led the rebellion, saying that it's this newly manufactured uh, metal image that had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And so you can picture Moses, he's coming down from the mountain, he sees the idol, he sees them worshiping an idol, and he throws down the ta tablets on which the law is written, not in anger, but in grief. The people had broken the covenant and God's servant smashed the tablets. He's letting them know, you broke the covenant by your actions, and I took the tablets that symbolized the covenant and broke them right in front of you because I wanted you to see this is what you've done to your relationship with the Lord. It is a public sign of the people's disloyalty and disobedience, and the rest of their history has showed how slow they were to turn back to the right way. I mean, the golden calf is clearly the low point, but it was the lowest of many low points. And Israel has no grounds for pride. They should be humbled by the Lord's goodness to them. They cannot stand on their own righteousness. What can be done? Well, truth be told, we cannot stand on our own righteousness either. What can be done? We do what we've always done. We pray. In times of crisis, whether we're at the base of Mount Sinai, the banks of the Jordan River, or standing in a public square in Kiev, we pray. When we're worried about our children, worried about our health, worried about our own country, worried about a coming war, or overwhelmed by the uncertainty of it all, we pray. But we often don't know how to do that. One of the reasons we have printed prayers that we read responsibly and then we have the pastoral put prayer, which are studied prayers, meaning that we put some thought into preparing them, is to help teach you how to pray, to help teach you what to pray. We understand prayer is hard work, and so we want to not just lead you in it, but to model it for you. When the elders and deacons come up here to pray, they put time into it beforehand, sometimes several hours, so they can have a prayer that you can pray too. Because one thing this passage teaches us is to remember the power of prayer. To remember the power of prayer, verses 18 to 29. Moses says, 
Then I lay prostrate before the Lord uh, as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And then I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Taborah also and at Massah and at Kibrath, Hadavah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. Those place names are four different times where they disobeyed God. He says, You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servant. Moses is telling God to remember. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land he promised them because he hated them, he's brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. Verse 29, for they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So you have this sad catalog of Israel's rebelliousness and it's uh, relived by this moving account of Moses' role as the intercessor for the Hebrew people. God threatened to destroy the people and blot out their name from under heaven, verse 14. He said he was going to make a totally new start, a fresh start by making Moses the father of a new nation, like a new Abraham. And he said, mightier and greater than they. And when Moses heard this, he pleaded with God on behalf of these disobedient people. The story of Israel's intercessor offers some important insights into how we should pray for others. First, Moses pleaded for God's covenant faithfulness. Right from the start, his prayer is based on God's faithfulness, not theirs. Even though they were far from righteous, uh, Moses prayed the Lord would not turn away from them. Verse 27, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. His plea isn't based on anything to do with Israel. The Lord's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob meant that God's honor was at stake. God promised that he would multiply their descendants and make them into a great nation and give them the land of Canaan as their inheritance. God made these promises to the patriarchs, even though they and their children were sinful people. Clearly implied in these promises is the promise of grace to the undeserving. 
And Moses draws on that, and that actually runs through all of God's dealings with Israel. Moses is also concerned that their enemies would dishonor God, drawing the wrong conclusions from Israel's destruction and accusing God of being powerless and loveless. God's known among the nations as a mighty God and a merciful savior for his people. He's the God who struck the Egyptians with terrible plagues, parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could pass through. And Moses just recoils from the thought that anyone might think that God had run out of strength and could no longer lead his people. The God of Israel never grows tired. Psalm 121.4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Furthermore, he recoils from the thought that God's love could grow cold and turn into hate. Later prophets would speak of an everlasting and unquenchable love. One such example among many is Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to Israel from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Moses knew the covenant promises that undergirded those statements. For God to deny his love for Israel would have been to reduce himself to the level of the petty deities of those nations who are unpredictably reacting to the events around him. Moses' intercession for his people is not only intense, it's long. It lasts 40 days and 40 nights. The same length of time it took for Moses to receive the law. He says, I was on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. You sinned, I prayed for 40 days and 40 nights. Again, Moses is true to his calling. Look how it's recounted in Psalm 106. It says, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him. You ever heard that phrase, to stand in the breach? Now you know where it comes from. To turn away his wrath from destroying them. And then Moses concludes uh, uh, here by gathering his, all his thoughts into this sort of final emotionally charged appeal. Verse 29. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. These aren't my people, Lord. These are your people. You saved them and now you need to keep them. And Moses' intercessory prayer points to the work of the coming Messiah. The prophet Isaiah, commenting on the coming of the Messiah, says, he is the one, Isaiah 53, who poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In the new covenant, Christ serves as a mediator for his people before God. The Apostle Paul says, Romans 8, verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Interceding is just a way of saying praying for us. And the author of the Hebrews says, Hebrews 7, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In Hebrews 3 we read, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our, in our hope. Whereas Moses' intercession and prayer is intermittent, even though 40 days and 40 nights is a long time. We're told that Christ's intercession for us is perpetual. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 25, says Christ carries out the office of a priest in offering up himself as a sacrifice one time to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Christ Jesus is the believer's Moses, praying for those who trust him. And just as God listened to his servant Moses, he listens to the prayers of his own beloved son. This is what draws us to God when we realize that just like the Israelites, we're sinners who've rebelled against God for many years. Yes, God is a just and holy God who must punish sin, but he's also a merciful God who hears the prayers of those who fall on their faces and seek his mercy. We're to pray bluntly, honestly, realistically about our sins, confessing them to God. That's why we do that every Sunday. And even when we're ashamed and embarrassed and unsure whether God could ever have mercy on a sinner like us, we're still to come to God in prayer. And when we do, we're to pray boldly and persistently. And when we found God's mercy for ourselves, then we'll pray with a passion for God's glory, asking that God would demonstrate his righteousness in the salvation of sinners, just as he did for the Israelites. And according to the Apostle Paul, just as he does for us, Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't come to him in our own strength, but in our weakness. Just like the Israelites, our redemption begins by confessing our sinfulness, acknowledging God's greatness, and expressing our dependence on him. And that's why, just like the Israelites, we need to remember God remember our sin, and remember our redemption. And prayer helps us to remember. It's time to pray so that you will remember. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to remember you, to remember our own sin, to remember our redemption. 
We so desperately want to take credit for our own salvation as if somehow we deserve it. Please forgive us. For we know it's only through the person and work of Jesus Christ that we have any hope at all. So not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask you to change us. Teach us to pray. Teach us to remember. Teach us to trust your word. Teach us to plead for your covenant faithfulness to be at work in our lives and in the lives of our children and in the lives of our grandchildren. Teach us to plead for you to decisively act in a culture that continually dishonors your name. Teach us to plead for the salvation of people who deny your power and dismiss your love. We plead with you that you would teach us how to plead with you more and work in each of our hearts this year as we learn more about knowing God and through the book of Deuteronomy draw us ever closer to the one who ever lives to plead for us at the throne of grace, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.